0: The following program may offend those who say fudge instead of another F word. It may also offend those who say fudge when asked to rank their top three desserts. It's Monday, November 9th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Joe Biden shall be the next president of the United States. Donald Trump shall be a private citizen subject to the laws of the states and the federal government. Not just the de jure laws, the laws of who we let bother us and who we pay attention to. Though offensive, his proclamations and statements become toothless, he no longer denigrates our reputation, just his. It turns out the conspiracy-fueled, unintelligent bloviations of a dyspeptic Fox viewer who isn't president rank a lot lower than the same rantings of a person who is. In fact, they're not even in the same phylum. Don from Queens grousing about the media isn't orders of magnitude less important than the president of the United States doing the same. It's something of a Linnaean hierarchy of taxonomy to determine just how much less important it is. And Donald Trump suing over the election. And so, you know, he never really wins lawsuits. He just uses lawsuits to delay and deny and to get some victories out of the process. Okay, he doesn't have a perfect record of defeat in civil courts, but his victories are of the kind in which he uses the courts as a tactic to hold on to what he already has within his grasp. Now he's trying to use legal maneuvering to gain something and something that's rightfully not his. And he's fighting against the country's best lawyers who also happen to have the law on their side I don't even need to point out that when these excellent lawyers serving Joe Biden, the Democrats, democracy, call, say, a press conference at the Ritz, it will not be held outside the offices of Fred Ritz steam cleaning and rodent taxidermy. I have to say, I did think the Four Seasons press conference, it was funny, but it's like the kofefe of the post-election world. Everyone knows it's funny. It's obviously hilarious. You can't really riff on it, the humor is so self-contained, although a key use of humor is to signal in group fealty. So it works on that level. Anyway, as Donald Trump's sell-by date is now known, no amount of appeal to the state's Dairy Commission is going to change that. And what happens is all the horrors that he perpetuates become not stabs at us or our democracy, but just more and more self-inflicted wounds. And the attendant outbursts aren't 90% pathetic, but 10% troubling each day. It's like 95, five, 97, three, as our beliefs and our systems and ourselves separate more and more from the person of Donald Trump as he becomes less and less of a president. Take his appointment of the unqualified. So Mark Esper is out, and now a guy named Christopher C. Miller is in. Time was, we would have to know and care about Christopher C. Miller. We'd examine his background, find out articles he wrote, perhaps some embarrassing speeches he gave. No, who cares? No, his descendants will have to live with the fact that Christopher C. Miller is accepting the position during the sunsetting of the Trump presidency. The shame is theirs, not ours. Michael Moore is concerned that Trump won't leave. He just won't leave, Bill Maher says it too first, I dismissed it, and then I considered it, and then I thought about taking it seriously. Now it seems like another goofy thing Michael Moore says. From seer to schlub goes Michael Moore once again. Or take QAnon. Oh, sure, they got a couple of their adherents elected. Lauren Boebert in Colorado, Marjorie Taylor Greene, full, full-on QAnon from Georgia. And QAnon is a serious threat, but it's serious like Ebola, not the coronavirus. I mean, it's terrible, but the outbreak so far has been contained. Also, the occupant of the White House during Ebola fought Ebola, but the occupant of the White House during QAnon and Corona claimed not to really know how those things worked. Last week on the show, I talked about the ambivalence people felt, people who voted for Biden. It just didn't seem like a celebration or an exaltation. Well, maybe one reason back then that the emotions didn't match the result is that we we didn't really have a result yet feels a lot better with an actual declaration of victory, no? feels a lot less threatening from the side that still won't acknowledge a loss. Just seems more and more pathetic. There are still 72 days to go before inauguration. Trump can still cause chaos. He could still, I don't know, give out or sell some pardons. And please, someone in the military firmament, just lose the codes to the missiles. The nuclear football, can we just do a couple kneel downs to end the game? Run out the clock. But it is a new fresh feeling in America. I say, let's bask in it, and then let's gather around and join in with passion, hope, and solemnity as AOC and Conor Lamb tear each other limb from limb. And Mitch McConnell reacts to the concept of progress like Indiana Jones reacts to snakes. In other words, let's get back to normal. On the show today, the continuum from sanctimony to lacrimosity, how the networks immediately made their calls. But first... Pennsylvania has been called for Biden, you heard. Why did it take so long? Well, in some cases, it was for the same reasons that Oklahoma, California, New York, and Missouri are still taking so long to count their vote. Just that in those states, the outcome isn't in doubt. So we don't pay attention. We don't think it's a big deal. That's one of the reasons. Another is that there was a long tense process that was guaranteed by the political makeup of Pennsylvania politics. Now, if this were an exceedingly close race, we all might be looking at Pennsylvania and saying, oh God, how could this have happened? But because it looks like Biden will win by a decent margin, we tend not to ask the hard questions. Well, I say we, but not I, I shall. To Katie Myers, political reporter of public radio station WHYY in Philadelphia, on next to explain the weirdness in the Commonwealth. Pennsylvania is the keystone state. And if you know how a keystone works, it's the crux, the lever, the hub. It is, you know, the center of the foundation. And guess what? That's what Pennsylvania has been, turned out to have been, during this election. I'm joined by Katie Meyer. She is a political reporter for WHYY. Hi, Katie.
1: Hello.
0: So Katie, I'm going to ask you a number of questions. They will end in a specific question, but I'm just going to tell you that every question, the implication is that all I am asking is what the hell is up with that? So let's go through a few things going on in Pennsylvania where you'll be asked to answer what the hell is up with that. Okay.
1: Great. Sounds good.
0: It's really the really how journalism works. Okay. So before the vote Before the vote was even set, as we know, different states have different procedures for handling mail-in ballots, handling the vote, and the procedures for Pennsylvania were hashed out between the Democratic Governor Tom Wolf and the Republican legislature. Could you draw the line between what they worked out and what we saw in and around election day?
1: So I think one of the important things to note is that even before, you know, the pandemic hit way before the election, this would have been 2019-ish, Pennsylvania, the legislature and the governor all passed this slate of election reforms. And uh, one of the big ones was it created no excuse mail-in voting. And so this was something that didn't happen because of the pandemic, but ended up being super important when the pandemic hit. People in Pennsylvania that used to have to, you know, have a reason for voting by mail, Now, they could just do it. And so already we were expecting to see way more vote by mail. Then the pandemic hits and we start to have these negotiations about, oh, my gosh, well, we're going to have a lot more people voting by mail now. What do we do? And one of the big questions was, well, and this especially after the primary happened, when they realized how long it took them to count mail-in ballots and how many there were, they started discussing, we should probably give counties more time to count these things. It was actually never really that controversial. Like, counties were asking for this, Democrats were asking for it, Republicans were asking for it. And so they started debating, okay, how much more time should we give counties to tabulate ballots? Now, the problem came in when other things started getting added to the election mix. And one of the big ones was, you know, the Trump campaign had been pushing to get rid of mail ballot drop boxes and to allow um, poll watchers to kind of come in from anywhere and poll watch in specific precincts. So really what you would see was like people watching polls in Philadelphia who didn't live in Philadelphia, for instance. And so this negotiation, as it always, you know, does in Harrisburg, at least, all these issues got mixed up together. And the Republican-controlled legislature passed a bill to Governor Tom Wolf, who was a Democrat, and the bill would have extended the period for counties to count ballots. You know, it gave them, I think, like an extra week. But it also would have banned ballot drop boxes, you know, the drop boxes where people can, you know, drop off their mail mail ballots quickly and not have to mail it in and worry about mail speeds. So it would have banned those. And it also would have allowed poll watchers to come in from anywhere and watch polls in counties and precincts they don't live in. So Democrats, you know, took this bill and said, we're not going to sign off on this. We don't want to ban drop boxes. We don't want poll watchers coming in from different places. And so... They never came to a consensus and Republicans never passed them, you know, a clean bill on the on the pre-canvassing stuff. So it so it died. And uh, so then you get into this election where we know that, uh, you know, Pennsylvania is going to have a ton of mail ballots. We know that the mail ballots are going to be heavily Democratic because, you know, Republicans had been discouraging people from voting by mail and Democrats had been really pushing it. We knew that the in-person votes would therefore skew Republican. And so that set up the dynamic that you saw during the election in Pennsylvania where you had this like very big Trump lead and then a very, very slow resurgence of Biden votes. And it wasn't those votes were like new or coming in or anything. They were just slowly being counted because it took a while. So uh, yeah, all of this, like the groundwork for the main dynamic, I would say, of this election was laid by the Pennsylvania legislature many, many months ago.
0: So if the legislature never signed the clean bill, how did we get to the point where uh, they would allow the count of ballots that were received three days after the election if they were postmarked before the narrowest uh, such window of any state?
1: That was courtesy of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And I should say the court is controlled by Democrats or dominated by Democrats right now. And uh, the lawsuit came about, I mean, it was, you know, the state had asked for this extension. They, there was contention that there were going to be mail delays and that people who, you know, sent in their ballots uh, in, you know, good time, you know, they were following all of the um, deadlines that the state set for them, that those ballots would not arrive and they would be therefore disenfranchised. So, you know, the state Supreme Court uh, accepted that argument and they said, OK, you can vote Your your ballot can be accepted by your county for three days after the election. So from Election Day, November 3rd until 5 p.m. on November 6th, as long as your ballot was postmarked by Election Day, which was the deadline to postmark it, then you're good to go. The ballot can be counted. So, you know, that was, again, that was a function of the Supreme Court. Now, of course, Republicans did not like this conclusion. They didn't like the ruling. They thought it was overreach. Basically, they were saying the Supreme Court is creating law. They cannot do that. And they appealed it up into the federal courts, went to the U.S. Supreme Court two separate times and has so far been upheld.
0: So the same leaders who uh, were were battling with Tom Wolf, you know, the same leaders who were negotiating with Tom Wolf, Senate Majority Leader Jay Corman and the uh, president pro tem of the uh, Senate Joe Scarnati, have called upon Kathy Buchvar, who is the Secretary of State, to resign because she fundamentally altered the manner in which Pennsylvania's election is being conducted. Last part first, Buchvar is not going to resign. But what's their case?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple different things, but the big one, and you know, I apologize. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit here on like Pennsylvania election administration. Um, this has to do with that three-day extension that we mentioned for, uh, ballots to be accepted in Pennsylvania. So, like, I, th- as far as I can tell, like, the biggest case the Republicans are making here is that Book Bar gave guidance that they felt was inconsistent to counties about what to do with this three-day extension. So, um, when Republicans made it clear that they were going to sue to try to get that extension overturned, and, you know, we are expecting there to be further, you know, litigation on this, um, book bar sort of looking ahead said okay when you accept these ballots counties you must segregate them that means you know put them into a different bucket and her initial guidance to the counties was like don't touch them until I give you additional guidance about what to do with them and Republicans kind of the way they interpreted the ruling that the court had handed down saying the ballots should be segregated um, they took that to mean like don't touch them don't count them um, when uh, She then, like on election day, gave additional guidance, as she had promised to, to the counties. She said, "Okay, keep them segregated. Yes, keep doing that. But you can count them and we'll know how many there are and we'll know who the votes were for. And uh, so Republicans did not like that she did that. They thought that that was against the guidance that the court had provided. And um, that was, you know, counties did different things with that. Some counties said, "Okay, we'll count them. And some counties said, I don't want to count them. Like Lancaster County, a Republican-controlled county, did that. And so, you know, they thought there was confusion. They thought there were, like, counties just kind of going off and doing their own things. And they said that was a problem, especially, again, if these votes are contested. Now, again, as far as I have been able to tell, all the ballots were still segregated. We have them in different buckets still. They're just being counted. That's one of the big points, anyway, that Corman um, and Scarnati and other Republicans are making.
0: So the court did not give guidance as to whether to count or not. They left that ambiguous. And into that ambiguity, Bookvar said what she said, which is count them. Am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, um, that's, again, my understanding of it. There's been a lot of lawsuits, so I'll I'll check it. But uh, yes, I think that is the case.
0: So, uh, you know, I looked at this call for resignation that kind of means nothing. It doesn't have any force of law. What does it tell us that this was the tactic that they used?
1: I mean, you know, I think singling out, I mean, well, first of all, it's a Democratic administration, right? far is a Democrat. Uh, a tweet that she made back when she was a private citizen before she was Secretary of State saying that she thinks that you know, Donald Trump demeans the office of the presidency, that got tossed around. Basically, it's another, you know, point that the Republicans are making or, you know, Thing that they're trying to bring up to say, hey, like, we do believe that there's reason to believe that um, people with, you know, interests that go opposite to the president or opposite to Republicans were in charge of this election and may have affected it in ways that were negative for the president. You know, I, and I should say at this point, like, Republicans did great down ballot in Pennsylvania, like the Democrats really did not do well in state house, state Senate and congressional races that they wanted to flip. So I think this idea that there was like systematic fraud that Democrats perpetuated on behalf of the Republicans, like it's an interesting question to ask. Well, it's like, why didn't they do any fraud down ballot then? But again, and that's kind of beside the point, because there's really been no evidence of anything systematic that was done by Democrats. So um, anyway, I think that, you know, it is, you know, they putting out whatever they can and saying, hey, we're not happy with the process. We believe there are questions about it. and. We're pursuing this in court.
0: What is the sense of the Pennsylvania state legislature? Are they more the Republicans in the mold of Pat Toomey, who's the uh, senator who has, along with Mitt Romney, been one of two prominent Republicans saying that while we do want to pursue every legal avenue, let us not allege fraud when there is no fraud, or have they been more on the side of, you know, one of uh, some sort of fellow who might be giving a press conference outside of Four Seasons landscaping? What's their tone been?
1: It's, it's mixed, I would have to say. I mean, I think it depends on what, um, if you're talking about the House or Senate, certainly I think the House has um, tended toward, or at least certain members, certain prominent members of the House have tended more toward like a Rudy Giuliani type of rhetoric. The Senate tends to be a little bit more cautious. But I think in general, I think they've kind of fallen somewhere between Chumi and Giuliani in terms of rhetoric. I think they're being pretty careful about what, like, the methods that they use, but they're also not being, um, you know, there's no secret that they believe that at least Kathy Bookvar has overreached and they believe that they have a, a case about that. So, um, I haven't, asked, I, I, for instance, I haven't seen them say like, Oh, votes were stolen. There was huge fraud. But I think I, I, what you have heard them say is Democrats misbehaved in several ways that we believe we can make a case about.
0: I think this is going to be my penultimate question, but can you give us a roundup or an assessment of what the different lawsuits or specific allegations of fraud, where do they stand in the state of Pennsylvania?
1: Yeah, so, so far we have not seen a lot of the lawsuits really stick um, that the Trump campaign and other Republicans have filed, but I'll give you like a couple of the big ones that um, we're looking at. First, it's that three-day window um, that the state Supreme Court gave for acceptance of ballots. This is the one that Republicans think was overreach on their part. So we, you know, that is being contested. We'll see where that goes. Um, And again, those ballots had segregated. You know, some some conservatives on the Supreme Court kind of gave themselves a window for maybe saying, okay, yeah, we think this case has merit, but it's unclear if like the rest of the court believes that. Then we have some stuff about poll watchers in Philadelphia. This is one of the things that Giuliani has been talking about a lot, um, saying that poll watchers could not get as close as they wanted in that convention center where Philly was counting votes. Now, I should say the whole process was live streamed and poll watchers were in that building pretty much consistently as the votes were being counted. So, um, uh, you know, we shall see. There's also, again, like some stuff about like, book first guidance to counties about how to handle the three day window. So those are some of the big components that we're going to see talked about here in the weeks coming forward.
0: Okay, Katie, here's my last question. So far, we've talked about negotiations between the governor and the legislature to open or limit balloting. We've talked about leaders of the legislature um, calling on the secretary of state to resign. We talked about lawsuits and where they're going, allegations and where they're going. And so far, it seems like none of it is working if working is defined as taking away the results of the election or getting Donald Trump elected is the reason that it's not working simply because the margin of victory is so big as to obviate all these methods? Or is it that the tactics were never were always shaky and never going to really work in the first place?
1: Yeah, I think it's a combo. Um, Obviously, if, for instance, Pennsylvania had not been called yet, and we had like a real question over who won, you'd be seeing a lot more emphasis on these lawsuits. And I think you'd be seeing many more Republicans sort of saying like, oh my gosh, like this is a really big deal. We cannot call this race. We cannot say that Donald Trump has lost Pennsylvania. At this point, it looks at at my last check, it looks like Biden's leading by over 45,000 votes, which is bigger than the margin Trump won by four years ago. Um, It seems (laughs) extremely unlikely that any of these lawsuits would change enough votes to change the outcome. So I think, again, it's a combination of like, you know, we're going to see where the lawsuits go. We're going to see if Republicans get any little wins. But also, we just don't think it's going to have a huge impact. So that's absolutely part of the dynamic you're seeing here is Republicans kind of like being like, yeah, we'll pursue it to make a point. But, you know, it doesn't look good for Trump.
0: Katie Meyer. Covers politics from the center of our political universe, which is not Four Seasons Landscaping. It is, as was once the case, our capital, now our de facto capital of politics. Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, WHYY reporter Katie Meyer, thank you so much.
1: Thank you. And thank you for giving Philadelphia and Pennsylvania
0: the do that they really deserve. <laughs> yes. Wow. What a scrappy underdog. They need their <laughs> due. <laughs> that was seriously, that was excellent. I thank you for your time and expertise. Oh,
1: of course. Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: And now the spiel, the big board, the latest totals, a new batch from Maricopa, new results from Allegheny. At this hour, Pennsylvania can report and then It all came to this. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. Okay, we have an announcement to make. Joe Biden is president elect of the United States. CBS News projects that Joe Biden has been elected the 46th president of the United States. We can say that Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is on track to win the state of Pennsylvania, become the 46th president of the United States. The Fox News decision desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania and Nevada, putting him over the 270 electoral votes he needs to become the 46th president of the United States. And that was it. But it wasn't because for every broadcaster, it was a chance to mark the moment as a general marks a victory, as a poet marks a turning point, as a bear marks a tree. Over on CBS, John Dickerson was insightful. Nora O'Donnell was probing. Uh, Major Garrett got a little lost in demographics. What did we see about why suburban women were so decisive in this election?
1: The general sense is temperament. There were many suburban women who said, you know, if you were to ask me and pin me down on the policies, I would say I'm probably net Trump. Yes. But I'm not net Trump temperament. There's part of his temperament, his approach to the presidency, his approach to talking to the country or at the country that I find, if not offensive, so troubling that I will set my policy preferences aside to have a different There are those who describe the presidency as the background music of American life. Mm -hmm. They wanted different background music. Because the presidency is always with us, and certainly with this president.
0: Okay, so it was less a repudiation of indecency and more of a Spotify playlist thing. But you know what? That's fine. It's plausible, even. Over on CNN, the opinions ranged from the factual to the grandiose. Lately, every anchor on CNN has begun to mistake their program for their soapbox. I get it. Trump is excessive and dishonest and infuriating. And when you stand up to a force, that's not right there is a temptation to become righteous. It feels good. It just doesn't feel like news per se. One guy I like on CNN is Jake Tapper. Here was his elegy for an exiting president. It's been a time of several significant and utterly avoidable failures, most tragically. Of course, the unwillingness to respect facts and science and do everything that could be done to save lives during a pandemic. It has been a time where truth and fact were treated with disdain. It is a time of cruelty, where official inhumanity, such as child separation, became the official shameful policy of the United States. But now the Trump presidency is coming to an end, to an end, with so many squandered opportunities and ruined potential, but also an era of just plain meanness. It must be said, to paraphrase President Ford, for tens of millions of our fellow Americans, their long national nightmare is over. Okay, that's pretty eloquent. And if CNN is going to allow itself a bit of brief editorializing, that's fine. Have Tapper do it. But it wasn't brief. Their commentators chimed in, their contributors chimed in. Van Jones cried. Fellow anchors made their marks. Here's Don Lemon when he was first given a platform to explain his reaction. What being a true American is, it's not just performative, Putting up flags and putting big flags in your yard. And I heard someone say, Oh, I don't understand why, how Joe Biden could win. Cause I didn't see a lot of flags and I, he didn't, I didn't see a lot of people with big events. That is not what this country is about. It's not about performative patriotism. It's not about who can hang the biggest flag. It's about who has the biggest heart and who, it, who, who has class. Who can turn the other cheek? Who can forgive their neighbor? That's what being a real patriot is. No, I think that's what being Jesus is. We elected a president who wrote the crime bill and tried to expand categories of the death penalty. We did not elect Jesus. CNN was very keen on letting us know that we just elected an old man.
1: So this man who was the youngest man, um, one of the youngest, I should say, ever elected to the United States Senate will now be the oldest man ever to take the presidential oath. Think of that. Think of that.
0: That was Gloria Borgia.
1: But it was, as you said,
0: Dana, a white, old man who did it. That was Abby Phillips. And here again is Abby Phillips. Between Joe Biden, who has been in Washington for decades and decades, the old guard, the uh, 70-something-year-old white man. And Abby Phillips again, really hitting the actuarial tables this time. It just so happens that Joe Biden was the guy for the moment. Right. And he had to wait until the very end of his political life. So it is on CNN that Joe Biden is said to have an eye towards the future and a foot in the grave. On MSNBC, he was just Odysseus. Home is the metaphor for Joe Biden, I would think, today. And that's what he wants to do with the country, with the United States of America, is to bring all of us home. I'm actually already home. I'm just looking forward to kicking Donald Trump out of one of the major living room appliances within my home. Mika Brzezinski noted that the presidency wasn't the only great honor that Joe Biden has won.
1: Joe Biden received the first Brzezinski award after the passing of my father for a million reasons. But the one I look to is how grounded they are. When you meet Joe and Jill Biden, you do not look at them and hear the sounds and sights, uh, see the sights of people who are creatures of Washington. You see Scranton, you see Wilmington, you see people that are just like you and me and that's everybody. They are uh, people that never got changed by Washington and grounded by that hardship.
0: And on and on it went. Savior, hero, vassal, Also Caucasian teetering on the edge of his mortal coil. Joe Scarborough of MSNBC quoted Aeschylus. The MSNBC reporter with the Biden campaign quoted Seamus Heaney. If I hung around too long, I was sure someone was going to quote Mark Anthony addressing the citizens of Rome. And I get it. I've been on TV too. You have a little moment, you want to say something meaningful. And Donald Trump is not an honorable man. That is true. But this was like... After the U.S. hockey team won in 1980, the Miracle on Ice.
1: Do you believe in miracles?
0: Yes! What if Al Michaels got to say, do you believe in miracles? Yes. But then every sportscaster in America each got a crack at making his mark on the moment. Do you believe in miracles? Then Kurt Gowdy. It's not enough to believe in miracles. Our young Olympians have conjured one. Brent Musburger. Never before has such a modeled group of youngsters faced down a terrible army. Jack Buck. Some say the world shall end in fire. I say the free world has ended the foe's dominance on ice. And on and on and on it would go. Just like on the networks, grander and grander they went, longer and longer, more and more dramatic, circling the cotton candy machine to spin an even greater confection of sugary impermanence. This has been an unprecedented and in many ways a terrible time. And the news, not all, but lots of it, sought an emotional connection with an audience, asserting that they weren't only speaking the truth, but sharing our truths. And okay, I get it. We're all human, probably great for ratings. But just as the Biden presidency is said to represent a return to normalcy, constraint and reserve, so too should the news take note. Let's breathe, two, three, and step back. From the nightly tearing of hair and rending of garments and the occasional pronouncement of doom, and go back to the reporting of news. There might be a Brzezinski Award in it for you if you do. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Margaret Kelly has called a press conference at the Marriott. No, no, not the hotel, the Marriott. Marriott's finery and affordable garments. It's a lovely dress shop run out of the back of an old Curves for Women. Daniel Schrader is having a gathering at the W. Not the hotel, that's what he calls the Whataburger on Route 17. You know, Mickey D's, BK, the W, it all fits. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She invites you to her kickoff party in Las Vegas at the Venetian blind store that closed and became a vape store and then an escape room. And now it's just where a family of jackrabbits breed. All guests get a party favor. If you can catch them, they are jumpy suckers. The gist. We are a middle-aged white man, a close to half-century old white man, in many ways, a more dead than alive white man. And thanks for listening.